I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from, say, her name and COVID, to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. In 1967, Martin Luther King wrote his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? In this book, King laid out two distinct pathways in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. On the one hand, he saw increased repression and resistance to the basic demands that flow from a society formally committed to equality, while functionally tied to the enduring patterns of white supremacy, institutional rigidity, and class inequality. But on the other, King imagined a pathway toward an ever-expanding democracy and abolition of world poverty. The great reverend foresaw a reconciliatory confrontation with the origins of our social order and a commitment to a society in which the well-being of all is not indexed to who we are, where we were born, or how we came here. Now, in the aftermath of the election of our lifetime, we recall King as a reflection on where we have arrived at this particularly stark inflection point. Indeed, the 2020 election was a call to repudiate the ugliest dimensions of our society and to save a republic on the brink of self-destruction. 77 million-plus Americans and counting came together to oust an administration that oversaw a disastrous assault on our nation's physical, spiritual, and social well-being. Yet our celebrations are shadowed by another fact, that 72 million Americans demanded more. Undeterred by the death toll of COVID, the rising tide of racism and xenophobia, the erosion of institutional norms, and the looming threat of an American-style dictatorship. And while the exit polls remain partially incomplete due to high levels of absentee voting, the existing data suggests that Trump once again won both white women and white men and actually improved his vote count across almost every demographic group, LGBTQ, women, Latinx, Asian American, and even African American voters. Of course, the Biden-Harris turnout more than made up for these increases. But in a moment in which Trumpism has concretely undermined the well-being of a broad swath of Americans, this raises Dr. King's question to a new level. Can we imagine and begin to realize community in the midst of this chaos? Well, to explore these questions and others, we brought together an all-star group of Black Light veterans. We came together a week after the election to dissect what happened, what's happening, and to illuminate some of the possible paths forward. Joining me in this very special election postmortem and call to action were Representative Barbara Lee, Congresswoman from California's 13th Congressional District, Via Tan Nguyen, professor at the University of Southern California and Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement and the author of The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. 
Eddie S. Gloud Jr., professor at Princeton University and author of Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Janine Jackson, producer and host of Counterspin. Kate Mann, professor of philosophy at Cornell and author of Entitled, How Male Privilege Hurts Women. Kirsten West Savali, executive producer and senior editor of News and Politics at Essence Magazine. And Emery Wright, co-founder of Project South, a grassroots organization that played a key role in Georgia's Blue Wave. I began the conversation by asking Viet Thanh Nguyen to discuss some of the starkest paradoxes framing this election, such as, for example, despite Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric, his support among some non-Black people of color appears to have safeguarded Republican victories in places like Texas and Florida. Well, you know, for me as an Asian American, the one that really stands out is the fact that Donald Trump was very happy using terms like Kung flu and China virus to try to distract from his incompetency in handling the coronavirus. And yet he nevertheless managed to retain 31 percent support among Asian Americans. Now, this is a real head scratcher for me. You would think that anti-Asian racism at this level would compel almost every Asian American to be against Donald Trump, but that hasn't been the case. There is a significant minority of Asian Americans who are deeply invested in white supremacy, white privilege, being white allies and standing with whiteness because they recognize that this is the path to power and profit and inclusion in American society. And they do it for a variety of complex reasons, ranging from China to religion to social conservatism. But what I also want to stress, obviously, is that the overwhelming majority of Asian Americans do stand on the side of the Democrats. And what we really need to push there is to stress that Asian Americans are part of a multiracial coalition that stands for economic and social justice, and that we can articulate both of these positions at the same time. Yes, yes. So Janine, as a professional media critic, let's talk a little bit about the media's central storylines um, about this election, about this administration. So we, we're now hearing critiques of uh, how the Democrats lost. We're hearing... Uh, both-sidism that has seemed to grip the Beltway crowd and pundits, uh, work with McConnell, make the deals that you have to. This is what the mandate is. So talk to us a little bit about what role you're seeing and have seen the media play in um, setting up the parameters around the terms of this moment. Uh, corporate media coverage of the last four years and then of the last week have been deeply troubling to me. I mean, for years we've seen media normalizing outrageous anti-democratic and inhumane behavior. You know, Trump will give this kind of spit-flecked rant and the next day's paper will say he emphasized themes of energy independence, you know, and you think, well, wait, did you see what I just saw? You know, and at the same time, they've been misrepresenting public opinion, lying to us about us, about what we believe and, and what we can do. So it's not a surprise that now elite media are leaning hard into the kind of corporate democratic line that black people and activists cost Democrats a landslide and that somehow the lesson of the last four years is for media to pay more attention to aggrieved white people and to push against the transformative ideas that people are literally out in the street calling for. You know, popular ideas like healthcare for all 
are presented as unpopular, as marginal or, or radical in an effort to constrain our political possibilities. So yeah, we're seeing this emerging line that Biden can't or shouldn't govern without kowtowing to McConnell. They're assuming results from Georgia, right? But because that represents the bipartisan civility that is corporate media's holy grail and that presents social justice movements as incursions into a natural and acceptable status quo. The other ugly truth is that Beltway gridlock is also a media favorite because it allows the suggestion that everyone is to blame equally. And that lets them off the hook for their absurdly even-handed treatment in the face of a GOP that is off the rails. So even in recent days, we've seen media kind of holding up, rhetorically holding up Biden's votes against Trump's threats and delusions. Because after all, both sides see a path to the White House. But I never forget CBS's Les Moonves telling investors back in 2016, Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's damn good for CBS. So bring it on, Donald, keep going. That priority didn't change, even as journalists announced themselves to be defenders of democracy, and even as, of course, some of them did some very, very good critical work. But corporate media's ultimate story is always the system as it is, who it serves, harming who it harms, serving who it serves, the system works. And what it seems to me they're showing us now is they don't see any reason to shake up that frame facts and frankly, people be damned. There has been this assumption that this was gonna be the moment of reckoning and that the mainstream media was going to confront the conditions of possibility that they you know, made uh, for Trump and Trumpism. And you know, rather than seeing that unfold, we may be seeing basically a return to how it happened in the first place. So, you know, that's the picture from outside. Uh, Representative Lee, welcome to, to the show. I'd like to turn to you to get a sense from, you know, what it looks like uh, on the inside. I think a lot of folks who were part of this uh, groundswell may not really know that there was a platform <laughs> and you were part of that platform and there are realizable dimensions of that platform that actually uh, counter this argument that this election doesn't really turn in, in any substantive way. So what is it that you're reading in this election and what should most people know about actually what was in the platform? What, what actually this was all about? Thank you, Kimberly. Glad to see you again. And if intersectionality, if people don't know what that means now, they better get with the program. <laughs> Thank you for being such a tremendous leader and helping us organize around intersectionality, helping us look at policies. You know, everything we have to do, we have to see that as a lens. Now, the platform, I was actually on the drafting committee of the platform in 2016 and in 2020. What the platform is supposed to be, and believe me, nobody reads it, but it's supposed to be the agenda, okay, for the White House. So in 2016, we negotiated a platform between the Bernie constituencies and the Hillary constituencies. Everyone said it was the most progressive platform ever. 
because I did not endorse either one, I stayed neutral. I was able to help negotiate that platform. Fast forward to 2020. Let me tell you, and we have hearings around the country. And so it's important that we had different voices. Reverend Barber, for example, was part of our presentations. We have presentation from Alicia Garza and, and Black Lives Matter. We had a really broad-based group of individuals and organizations providing input into the platform, task forces that were established. So what our job was, was to take the results of the task force which were primarily consensus task force, not on everything, but mostly everything, and then frame that into a Democratic Party platform and write it. Once we draft it, then we take it to the full platform committee and the committee adopts it. And that's supposed to be the guidelines and the criteria that any president should use for it. For example, now what's in it? We have in our platform, and when you look at it, racial justice and addressing systemic racism, all through the platform in every single policy, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about criminal justice reform, we have a section in about Africa and the Caribbean, infant mortality, maternal mortality rates and what to do about it. The Hyde Amendment, which you know has denied access to reproductive health care as it relates to the all options, including abortions. That's been in policy since the 70s. So that has denied women of color, poor women, access to abortions. So we put in the platform, we're going to repeal the Hyde Amendment, repeal the Helms Amendment. And so the platform is, is a platform that speaks very proudly and profoundly to racial justice and cracking these chains of slavery that still exists. We actually endorse uh, reparations in the platform, my commission on truth, racial healing and transformation. So. I hope people read it because it's a bold, visionary platform. It's not 100% of what myself as an African-American progressive woman would want. I want 100%, but I would say we have 90% of what I think can be embraced by our young people because the movement of young people and Black lives and our dreamers uh, had to be taken into account in terms of priorities for the Democratic Party platform. So, And there's so much there that, that I hope um, listeners do hear uh, partly because I think the what what has the party done for me lately framework probably uh, circulates far more broadly than what is the platform that we can stand on to fight for. The idea that we can actually say things like structural racism, uh, which this president wants us not to be able to say, like the executive order saying, you cannot talk about structural racism, critical race theory, implicit bias, white privilege. I mean, really trying to say these are words that cannot be spoken, which basically means these are ideas that can't activate the kind of advocacy that we need to realize these things. That's what's on the Republican side of things. What's on this platform implicitly assumes that we are gonna have to talk about these things in order to build on the platform. Yeah. So, Kimberly, it says that in the platform, though, we didn't even dance around the use of, of terminology such, such as systemic racism or looking at reparations or any of the hardcore issues that we have to address honestly and authentically. We wrote that into the platform, but again, nobody reads it. But I hope this time, part of this is accountability and part of this is making uh, elected officials, including our president and vice president, accountable to the Democratic Party platform, which is the people's platform. And it is a progressive platform and we should really embrace it and work with the administration to see it enacted. 
Absolutely. You, you just mentioned, you know, women. And so I want to go to Kate. Um, so as I mentioned, Trump appears to have won all categories uh, of white folk, including women. And I'm, I'm kind of interested because this draws a lot of disappointment from people. It's almost like, you know, white women have been in our camp and they've abandoned the position. Uh, but in reality, you know, the majority of white women have voted for Democrats twice since 1952. So it's not like you guys left the building. It's more like we expected you to come into the building and you didn't. So what are the implications of white women's attraction to an autocratic male figure like Donald Trump? Yeah, well, I... I so appreciate the chance to, to speak to this because I think it is beyond time for a reckoning. So nothing that I'm going to say in any way excuses, let alone justifies white women's incredible complicity with white patriarchy. Um, I do think it's really useful to see it in a historical lens and to see that white women have always and continue to be highly complicit with and highly attracted to authoritarian leaders like Trump. So a book that I found very illuminating on this subject that was just out on uh, Tuesday, yesterday, um, is Ruth Ben-Ghiat's uh, Strong Men, which details the way racially dominant women have always been a big fan base for authoritarian leaders, including modern authoritarian leaders like Berlusconi in Italy. And so I think in some ways what we're seeing is the profoundly disappointing continuation of a very long trend where white women vote for what they're racially invested in, which is maintaining white supremacy. They vote with their husbands, who we know from Pew data are predominantly white men. We know that white women are in fact the least racially diverse in terms of their choice of partner when they're partnered with a man. That will be 90% of the time a white man, which is really remarkable. And that puts um, white women in a highly morally compromised position where they go along with white supremacist and patriarchal social forces, both because it's in their racial interest and also because of what I call a kind of empathy with white men, a kind of disproportionate undue sympathy for and willingness to side with white men or any racially dominant man in the relevant context, um, over feminist solidarity, which should be, and hopefully one day will be, with the most marginalized women, with women of color, with black women in particular in the US context. But my word, we have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, I think it just helps for people to, to contextualize it as you did in terms of relationships that are, are not just in the US. This is you know, sort of a global phenomenon and, and, and being able to frame this within the conversation of patriarchy. It's one of the ways that bringing race and patriarchy together allows us to, to see these patterns sort of a, as more historical and global. Not that it's a solution, obviously, but you know, knowing what we're up against is always informative rather than sort of seeing it as uniquely American and, and uniquely about white women. Uh, dominant women tend to associate politically, interpersonally with dominant men. So let's take it, you know, from there. 
I mean, it's really striking to me that in Berlusconi's Italy, you know, some of his biggest fans and some of his strongest and most enduring fan base was, um, again, white women. And so we see that there is, yeah, a sense in which maybe we were led to be too optimistic about white women's feminist solidarity with women of colour and black women and what we have to do is, again, not making excuses, but see this as par for the course historically. White men tend to attract the loyalty, subordination, and I think of it as subordination with a smile from, um, from white women like me. And, and I think it's helpful for us to remember when we're talking about the women's vote and we're talking about the women's vote on the progressive side of the line, we're not talking about the white women's vote. We're talking about the women of color vote. And sometimes truth and labeling makes all the difference in the world. On that note, Alicia, um, so what are you saying? What did we witness in this election? Particularly, what was the role of progressive coalition, the role of Black Lives Matter? You know, we're hearing the media trying to jump on it, diminish the activation that, that happened. So what are you seeing? Oh, I actually think that um, there's a few things that were at play. Number one, our opponents have a very, very sophisticated machine and they use the same playbook over and over and over again. And they are very good at repeating messaging. And the messaging that they repeated over and over again was rioting, looting, and socialism. And so when you look at communities of color, particularly communities of color that may be immigrant communities, socialism is a big thing for people. I think there's also the question here of evangelicals and the organizing power of evangelicals in this election cycle. And there are certainly lots of people who are being mobilized and were mobilized through their places of worship, through their places of faith. And ultimately, this strategy has been a core strategy of our opponents for the last 30 plus years. And they are sharpening and they are honing and they are getting better at it. Um, and in a lot of ways, I do sometimes feel like if we're not kind of scientific about what their methods are, we end up running around the chicken coop, right? <laughs> Spurting blood out of our necks, right? But not actually striking at the target. I think the other thing that is really fascinating to me, Kim, is that what we saw was a ton of people who had not previously been registered, who had not previously been a part of a political process, and who they were being mobilized by were our social movements. There was a lot of energy and effort and organizing that has gone in over the last decade plus into our communities, letting people know that there are a range of tools that we must use in order to build power. And this summer in particular, what we heard a lot from our social movements was that voting was not going to be the end all be all of anything, but that certainly voting was a terrain that we needed to fight on and not ignore. And so, you know, this argument that we saw coming out from moderate Democrats immediately after the election results was really curious to me, because when you look at the results, it's not clear to me that there's any evidence that moderates are who turned out voters in the selection cycle. There's no evidence to me that intersectionality played a role in, you know, curtailing uh, who voted and, you know, what the landslide was going to be. If I was going to be honest about what I think uh, prevented a landslide for Democrats, I think it was their candidate. 
in the primaries where we saw a consolidation, we saw all of the rest of the choices be kicked off the table and we were landed with um, a candidate that wasn't actually at the top of most people's lists. It, it is a hard road to hoe to tell people that they just need to go along to get along, especially in a moment where there is so much transformation that is happening. So I think that that was a damper uh, for the Democratic Party. And, you know, uh, Congresswoman Lee, you're 100% right. That platform is better than I certainly expected coming out of a party. And it breaks my heart that folks don't read it. But what I think that we do need to be doing is making it a mandate for governance, because that platform does talk about a lot of really powerful things that we would not expect to come out of this party. Um, and we need to hold the party accountable to its own rules. You know, lastly, in terms of our movement, you know, you're right, Kim, that, you know, this time around, we saw an increase in participation from white women voters on the wrong side of history. And at this point in time, I, I think it is a question for our movements. And to me, these are questions of infrastructure. And what are the vehicles that we are building, not just to organize our folks, not just to be in solidarity theoretically, right, um, but to do more than have conversations, to actually build blocks of people who we know are moving in a particular direction. And so I want to offer us that I think the weakest part of our progressive infrastructure is the is the piece around um, organizing white people to actually vote in their interests. Lots of us are trying to do a lot of things at once. And I just feel like that's a gaping hole in our in our infrastructure that keeps playing out time and time and time again. We now have an empty Senate seat that should be filled um, by a Black woman. Um, and so Congresswoman Lee, you've got my support. And I hope that, you know, everybody who's watching right now will help push you into that seat because we need you there. And then that means we got to fill a seat in Congress for, for the district that I live in, where Barbara Lee represents me. But it also means that we've got we've to have a game that is clear both inside and outside and Instead of against, it's actually for control of the state. At this point, our opposition wants to dismantle everything we know about how governance happens, good, bad, or ugly, and they want to replace it, right, with a completely different arrangement that keeps all of us out. And so in that, we do actually have a lot of different moves that we can make, and it really just requires us having honest conversations about where the center of power actually operates, where are the constituencies in motion, what is motivating people to get active on either side of the spectrum, and what do we need to do to fill the gaps in our infrastructure? Thank you, Alicia. But one of the things I do want to just uh, lift up and leave dot, dot, dot. Did you, you did say that you are in Representative Lee's district, correct? I am. Okay, so once we see Representative Lee becoming Senator Lee, maybe we're going to be here in Representative Garza. Let's <laughs> just like let's just throw it out there. Just throw it out there. But one of the most important things that that I hear you putting on the table, both you and Representative Lee, particularly as we talk about fighting for the platform, in order to do that, we have to stay activated. And one of the problems that has happened in the past is that we're activated to get through this election cycle and then quickly deactivate it. This has got to have a new ending, right? It's got to have, a, I guess, a new middle where the activation is the plateau. And then we keep moving forward with more activation. And we know we have something that we can be activated around. There is literally a platform 
for us to stand on and people need to know that. So with that, Kirsten, let me come back around to you because we started with the media and I, I just wanna get your voice in. One of the things that's really big here is sort of the asymmetrical implication of what happened, right? So in 2016, we had folks who said they were on our side of the line saying, you know, we've got to give up identity politics. So now we're hearing the same message, right? Win or lose, the argument is always, we have to figure out how to speak to a constituency and, and frame what we do in our best interest. And some part of this constituency, heck, they don't want to wear a mask in their best interest. So the idea that we now are going to go and say stuff that we haven't said before, whether it's successful or not, it seems a little asymmetrical to me. What's, what's your read of it? You know, Kim, first, I'm honored to be in you all's company. This is this is amazing. And AAPF has always been a disruption to the status quo from say her name to, you know, why we can't wait. So I wanted this conversation tonight. I've been waiting for it. And I will, I will honestly say that I think what has been underestimated in this moment is, is how much this country is committed to lying about the depth of his character, how uncomfortable it is with an uncomfortable display of racism. And when it comes to the media, we saw this Four years ago, it's not this. It's not any different. New York Times was saying, you know, we need to talk about both sides. It happened then as well. And what I've seen this cycle as well is a commitment to some media outlets to have an allegiance to a party as opposed to an allegiance to the truth. And I think that's why we end up in some of these positions. So if we have a party where, especially black media, I'm going to call out black media right now. If we have a conversation where it becomes, let's just lift up a party and it's not grounded in the movement, it's not grounded in Black politics, then we have this space where people can come in and talk about healing. We're not healing. We talk about a Malcolm X who said, if you stab me and it goes in nine inches and you pull it out six, am I really okay right now? And that's what we're seeing. You know, there's always been centrism's covert kind of capitulation to white supremacy. There's a danger in that. I have a neighbor who was a Trump supporter. I have another neighbor who supported Biden. And he said to me, I used to be great friends with this guy, but I heard him call Mexicans cockroaches. But if he needed something, I would be there. I said, that's the difference because you have not had that happen to your white son. If that happened to your white son, then it would be a different conversation. So I call out media in this moment to stay grounded in what black people need, what we're asking for, what the movement is asking for, because it was not five seconds before we saw MSNBC going to, this is the healing that we need. This is the moment that everything is going to be okay. No, it's not. You know, this is the moment that people ask for. They said, we need more fertile ground to do what we need to do in this moment. Not that it's in, not that it's over. This is the beginning of something. And now we've done a reset. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Kirsten, you've, you've taken me straight to Eddie Gloud, particularly on, on the question of healing. So, Eddie, I want to bring you in. Um, and, and both rely on your spiritual work and your historical work. So healing sounds great. You know, we are people who want to uh, get beyond. We are people who seek, you know, community. But there's also the reality that healing as a discourse, as a rhetoric, has been used in our own history as a way of denying and facilitating deeper uh, patterns of oppression. 
reconstruction was brought to an end under the frame of healing. It was just a healing that threw us under the bus for basically the North and the South white folks to get together uh, and put that civil war thing behind us. So what do we need to be concerned about with this current you know, conversation about healing? What needs to happen in order for it to actually have you know, some real transformative impact rather than simply a repressive one? First of all, I'm just delighted to be a part of this conversation. So thank you for inviting me. So look, uh, I want to echo something that Kirsten said, and that is that in order for there to be genuine healing, we have to tell the truth. We have to tell the truth of how we got here. We have to tell the truth of what's motivating 72 million people to vote for someone who's demonstrated who he is for the last four years, to vote for a party, to double down on a party that has enabled a person who is obviously incompetent, that's led to 240,000 people dead, the continuation, I mean, every day, mendacity, just lying through his teeth every single day. And then, of course, the corruption and graft, and then they double down on that, right? So we have to tell the truth. But you think about it, let's just go back to C. Van Woodward's classic, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And he talks about, you know, African-Americans gained their rights through a falling out of white people. And now they stood to lose their rights through a reunion of white folks. So when we think about reunion and we think about, you know, David Blight's classic book with regards to reunion and, and the Civil War, when we think about redemption and the lost cause, we know what that means. That is to say that healing always happens on the backs of those of us who bear the burden of America's lie. So what they have to do is they have to deny the reality of who they are, which means that there's some of us who have to bear the brunt of the compromise. So as they're talking about healing in this moment, Right? What does that mean? Defund the police is bad? What does that mean for us who are having to bear the burden of how our communities are policed? What does that mean to talk about Medicare for all in the way that they're talking about Medicare for all? I'm just trying to go down the line of the policies that will disproportionately impact our communities. And what does it mean for the Democratic Party to walk that back? Even though we have the platform and we need Senator Barbara Lee, let me just say that very clearly. We need that very clearly, right? So, so you know, just really quickly though, I think it's really important for us to just name the insanity. This third way democratic approach, which many of us saw coming from Gary Hart, the DLC that led to the election of Clinton, we can go down the line, we can call it Clintonism. We know what it is. That has contributed to the environment that produced Trumpism. It's not just a Republican story. So what does it mean that in the very moment where we can see the back of this dude's head, that folk are hearkening back to that politics, right? That's what, that's insanity by any measure. And so I think we need to tell the truth if there's gonna be genuine healing. And what we have to do is to say, we're not having that, not this time, not this time. And I think that's, that's where, I know we're getting there, but that's what we, that's where we need to be. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on that theme of we're not having it, it's important to then say, so what are we having? Like what's on our plate? So on this one, I guess the, the, the big news too is all eyes on Georgia. <laughs> Georgia went blue for the first time since 1992. So I want to I bring Emory in on this. And of course, you know, we're not done with all eyes on Georgia. So we're anxious to know how y'all do that. And second, what are we looking at right now? We're looking at a replay of Freedom Summer, for example. All eyes are on Georgia. Where should our bodies be? 
Well, thank you. Thank you for the question. And, and once again, for um, this unbelievable series and, and tonight, you know, so grateful to be among this leadership. I think really Alicia Garza sort of laid it out on a national level. And it, it's true here in Georgia where social movement and long-term grassroots organizing were really what made the difference here in Georgia. And, and we even spoke to that a little bit last time. You have a Black Lives Matter reckoning that happened over the summer and is continuing to happen in terms of people out on the streets and just demanding with their bodies, enough is enough. And that's a huge um, element behind what happened here in Georgia. And you have long-term organizing. I mean, the whole country is talking about, rightly, the long-term work that Stacey Abrams and, and New Georgia Project have been doing, um, NSA and Black Voters uh, Matter. Uh, but I think to, to a point that Kirsten made around naming the reality that a lot of media had allegiance towards the Democratic Party, what's been unique about uh, Stacey Abrams' work and Black Voters Matter is that allegiance has been to Black people and Latinx people here in Georgia. And, and that's what made it radically different from the other uh, voter mobilization work we've seen, national election after national election. And that's why people like Latasha Brown um, have been very successful. But also to name, like Project South, uh, there is a host of grassroots organizations, Southwest Georgia Project, um, Women Watch Africa, you have uh, the Hunger Coalition of Atlanta, that have been doing uh, work and continue to do work year after year. And this time it really paid off. Those numbers we got out in Atlanta, counties that now everybody knows, DeKalb, Clayton, Fulton, these are counties we've been working for years. And, and so it did pay off that, that long-term organizing work. The payoff was to defeat Trump. It was a tactical victory um, to give us as social movements more space to redouble our efforts really and, and build stronger movements from the bottom up that are gonna transform uh, Georgia and, and the country. And you know, I wanna just really zero in on the last thing you said, tactical, right? Because some people, and particularly the way the media talked about it, it's the, the whole basket or the no basket. And in fact, thinking about this as a long-term strategy, thinking about this as tactical maneuvering, that's a different kind of, of mindset that comes from social justice organizing from the bottom. And so the, you know, the ways in which it's framed or sometimes misframed shows, you know, whether you're talking about a social justice framework or whether you're doing the once in four years, you know, kind of approach. So what is it that you as an activist are looking for, expecting to see from, you know, the rest of the country that's deeply invested in this tactic being uh, productive? Well, yeah, and, and it is. It's going to be a big run, you know, over these next week. Project South is part of uh, um, alignment here in the South called the Southern Movement Assembly. And we're talking about how we can move all of our forces from across 13 Southern states here into Georgia um, for this run. We're also going to have you know, the whole country is coming to Georgia. And, and my big message um, to them is don't gentrify Georgia, y'all. We know what that looks like. Y'all are coming um, and, and we, we do want and need support, but we don't need people coming to try to think that they know better to help us. There is leadership. I just mentioned a whole bunch of organizations on the ground. We got plans. Follow local leadership. 
they're going to come in and and buy lots of things because you have to if you're visiting a state. I do it if I go somewhere. They're going to buy coffee. And in this case, they're going to buy photographers and, and poll workers and, you know, all sorts of things. Airbnbs. Buy Black. Buy Latinx. Um, you know, it's a simple thing to do. But respect the racial dynamics and the, the years of anti-Black racism we've been facing in this state. And don't just you know, fall into what's most comfortable or talking to people who you already know. But the most important thing is follow the local leadership. We, we do know what we're doing. If, if people didn't believe that before, maybe you could believe that now and, um, and just come in and support, but, but um, you know, follow the local leadership. Yes, yes, thank you. For, and particularly for that gentrification point, which is something that we've been talking about you know, with the Trump refugees, right, which, of, of which there are many, it is still, you know, a neighborhood that's defined by the base. Move in and respect, not move in and take over. We're going to reset in a second, but before we do, I want to come back to uh, Representative Lee. Should we be alarmed by some of what we've heard lately? So yesterday, President Trump fired the Secretary of Defense. Well, well, you know, I think we should understand that on January 20th, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will be sworn in. But having said that, this man is a national security threat and has been from day one. I do a lot in the national security space, foreign policy, military policy agenda of the House. We knew from day one what he was up to. The way he is operating now is like strong men operate in a dictatorship, Okay. And we have to recognize this has been part of their agenda in terms of the erosion of the public sector, in terms of really embracing what dictators embrace and how they move forward. And many of us go abroad, you know, talking about fair and free elections. We monitor elections. We supervise elections. And so there is no way we can do that with any integrity <laughs> anymore until after this because we can't tell any other country about fair and free elections, given what this man is doing. And so we know what he's up to, we're prepared, but I would say that we have to really focus on the fact that, that we've got it covered. It's anxiety provoking, I know, but there will be a peaceful transfer of power. But what we have to be concerned about are his people out there who they're lying to, who they're trying to pump up, to try to believe that the election was being stolen and to make sure that peace prevails. And, and I think that's what we all have to be mindful of. And he's creating an environment that uh, many of his supporters will uh, react to. Right now, I'm glad that uh, Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris is on the media talking to the public. I'm glad that uh, President-elect Biden is talking to people to try to show that uh, they are going to be uh, the, the next administration, but also keeping us focused on what we have to focus on now, and that's crushing this virus. Too many of our people are dying, too many people are getting this virus, and too many people are projected to die in the next couple of months. And we can't forget we're in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of all of this. And so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult transition. It's a difficult transfer of power. But I think we have to be mindful, be watchful, but not be afraid, but know that it's going to be rocky <laughs> and that uh, he has exhibited all of the tendencies that we know. And he's an impeached president. He tried to dismantle the three branches of government. He identifies with ruthless dictators. And he uh, does not really care about, nor does he understand, I don't believe what supposedly a democratic form of government uh, entails. 
so much there. But let's practice saying something that we're never going to, you know, get used to. Vice President Harris. So I don't have to tell you <laughs> that Black women exercising authority is not the easiest thing to do. So as we look ahead while we celebrate the historic dimensions, what are some of the things that you might expect to see? We already saw that this current president you know, use language to describe her that we know is inflected by race and gender. As a person, as the senior, the OG uh, in the group, what does the OG uh, think and help us see uh, as the road of ahead that Vice President uh, Harris will have to navigate? Sure, Kimberly, we know that uh, sexism, misogynism exists in this country. She knows that very well. And having said that, it's up to us <laughs> if, if the attacks come to make sure we defend her and black women. And, and so she's got a job to do. When you look, and I always cite her legislative uh, agenda, look at the bills that she has supported. I mean, now we're working, you know, cannabis reform. She, she carries the MORE Act in um, the Senate. When you look at all of the bills and her policies on housing, when you look at the agenda that she is carrying on, on criminal justice reform in the Senate, you know, we're looking at how she's going to take the, that policy agenda into the White House with an added voice, with a broader voice of, of women, of black women, women of color, and really bring forth the policies that are going to set the stage for the transformation of this country and many of our federal, especially our federal government policies. And so we just have to watch her back. She knows what she's dealing with. We as black women know, and as Dr. Maya Angelou said, it's still we rise. So it's like, we, she's prepared for all of this. And I think during the debate uh, with Pence, I think the public caught a glimpse of, of just how smart she is and how she is ready and prepared for any attacks that come after her, knowing that they definitely are gonna come. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you so much, Representative Lee, and, and thank you to everybody for, you know, beyond started. Most of the time we're in our first segment, but the conversation has been so rich, I did not want to disrupt it. For uh, our quick hit round table, I'm going to come back to the top and start with you, uh, Viet. So, you know, there are questions about how do we at this point you know, uh, read the situation more critically. There are questions about, are we close to like a coup or should we be worried about that? I guess the biggest thing is, you know, the, the Republicans have spent a lot of money over the last, you know, several election cycles, really trying to peel off pieces of this coalition. And there is a sense that, well, maybe the Democrats uh, need to take a page out of that playbook. Um, and actually go a little deeper in taking care of nurturing, broadening, deepening um, the, the, the traditional kind of constituency. What's your sense of what some of those moves might be or what they might look like moving forward? I think it's important to acknowledge that in a multiracial coalition, every community counts. So we can't take people's votes for granted. We can't assume simply because they are Asian or Latino, they're going to fall into the progressive side or the Democratic side. Just take Georgia as an example. There are a couple of hundred thousand Asian American voters in Georgia. If they voted in the same proportion as the national polls indicate, they constituted a very significant portion of the vote in an extremely close election, and they helped to make a difference. I mean, obviously, Black voters have carried you know, the bulk of the, of the struggle, but in areas where native people were voting, they were voting 95 to 97% 
Biden. Asian Americans have voted, as I said, 60 to 88% Biden. So we need to keep on focusing on these communities. What I hear from Asian American and Latino communities is that the Democratic Party is not listening to them closely enough, is not devoting resources to them. There's a lot of Asian American support for Donald Trump because there's a lot of misinformation going out there in Asian languages. And there's not enough of an effort right now to counter that. The effort that's coming is coming from grassroots organizations doing their own translations, trying to get their own information information out there, but we obviously need party support and national support in order to have multilingual reach for this multiracial coalition. And, you know, on, on that note, you know, how so much of the organizing and the resourcing for the organizing is actually coming from the grassroots, not being funded, you know, from the top, uh, that for many people was the Doug Jones story, right? Just sort of, you know, women and people of color are actually out there doing that work. So um, there's both that and, and just the reality of the, the value of the vote in terms of the money that's being spent to bring it in. Alicia, I know this was an issue that you were thinking about. We, we have been talking about it a little bit, you know, offline. What's the lesson um, that you've observed from this election cycle about the preparedness, the readiness to actually invest in the way that one would think, you know, makes sense in, in order to realize the possibilities of deepening and broadening the base? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we've got to be able to bring together the party infrastructure with the organizing infrastructure that already exists on the ground. And too often those things are completely separate. You know, I talked to Latasha Brown, who's been, you know, heading to from state to state on the blackest bus in America. I think they had something like 30 minibuses in addition to their big buses that they were taking everywhere they resourced more than 600 black organizations to really mobilize and organize in their communities. And yet they did not get resources from the party. And this isn't to bash the party infrastructure, but it is to say that at the end of the day, if we want to defeat Trump and Trumpism, we've got to start getting serious about organizing. And that means we have to start moving money differently. And it means we have to start moving money to the ground. And it means that we have to continue to help water the investments that organizers have been doing without resourcing, without attention, without power for a very long time. This is part of the equation to maintaining and sustaining a different organization of power over the long term. And these aren't new questions, right? We've been talking about this for a very long time. We are in a crisis in this country and it is not just our democracy. It's certainly about governance and it's also very much about how we distribute power. You know, I say in the in the purpose of power that movements are about getting more power to more people. And so if we are going to be able to harness the power of movements, right, we've got to start thinking more strategically and creatively about how we use the tools that are available to us to catapult us into new problems to solve as opposed to continuing to make the same old mistakes and expecting different results. And, you know, there, there is this assumption that self-interest is enough for, you know, the party to, to see this, right? But it, in a way, it's sort of reflecting what we see on the other side of the aisle. Self-interest sometimes is not enough to dislodge deep thinking that might be racialized. If this is what I got to do to get into the party, maybe I'll risk not getting into the party. 
And that's, you know, one of the significant ways that doing the same thing and expecting a different result does lead to a sense, you know, of madness. I was hoping that Congresswoman Lee could help write the toolkit because she certainly knows how to bring together movement and party infrastructure to get <laughs> things done. So Congresswoman, maybe that's the next, that's the next project after. Yeah, it's got, got to be, because let me just say now, I, I can say I can bash the party because I'm a member of the DNC and been in this party. Believe you me, part of <laughs> my being in it, and I pushed the envelope, Alicia, and you know, and thank goodness for the movement because we couldn't do anything with the party if it weren't for the movement. And, and so the movement is the reason we can exist, but the resourcing of the movement is what we have to do in terms of between elections. We need to resource our young people to stay engaged and to work on building power so the next election, they'll be ready either to run for office or be ready to elect whoever we think needs to be elected. And to value, you know, continuous engagement. Because yeah. it's not always the case that it's clear that all administrations want uh, continued engagement, right? So there, there is crossing that Rubicon as well. Um, I have many stories about Canton, Ohio, where I saw activation during the political campaign. And then I come back and all of those outposts and all of those offices were shut down. And just knowing what it would have looked like had the massive mobilizations in the last like five or six presidencies had maintained themselves on the ground, recognizing that that hasn't been the investment, that is something that seems as though a clear lesson that we could actually learn from how did this happen. Um, and I'll now, you know, pick up the other one that Viet just mentioned, which is misinformation. So we can talk about the fact that we know that there's misinformation and we know that the media participates in it, but what is the fix to it? What, what is it that critical engagement with the media looks like? And, and Janine, that is the work that you guys have been doing for decades. Where are we at with that? What do we need in terms of tools to keep these possibilities active and activated? Well, one of the things that I do want to say is that we aren't where we were at four years ago. You know, there's a whole lot of kids who don't give a damn what David Brooks thinks about them, who don't care what the New York, the New York Times dismisses them. It's not, it's not in their world. And that is important. You know, we know the way the right wing play the media. They know that media's a need to appear balanced means that anything they do, media will shift the frame of debate to encompass that new poll and then locate truth somehow halfway between that and what perhaps Democrats are saying. My new fear very quickly is that media will shift that window to include people who don't think Biden is the president and that that will become part of the acceptable range of debate and of conversation that we have to have. So what we have to do is fundamentally don't believe everything you read. And that is not a joke. You know, I really mean we cannot ourselves get swept up into the narratives and the storylines. And we're thinking, oh, I'm, an, I'm inoculated. I know this isn't really true. And at the same time, you're not reading what's not there, you know, so you have to pay attention to that. But Voters in Florida raised the minimum wage. You know, Portland, Maine voted for rent control and against facial recognition. Prop 17 reenfranchises people. These weren't anti-Trump measures. 
These were pro-justice and pro-equity measures. So we have a vision that is bigger than being anti-Trump. And we have to remember that and we have to not let media pull us off of that. And then finally, we have to make and support our own media where we aren't marginal, where we don't just show up at the end to respond to something, but we're setting the terms. And that media exists, you know, and we need to find it and support it and pump it up. And then we have to do more of what we're doing right now, which is to talk around the media to talk to one another around the media and share our successes and our tactics and our resources so that we can keep moving forward towards the world that we deserve. And you know that's gonna mean leaving a lot of legacy media behind until they're ready to, to change their mission, really, because we can't afford this narrow range of debate that leaves us out and that makes violent harms to us daily just somehow acceptable, somehow part of a status quo that if you're going to change it, hmm, you know, I don't know, you've got it. That's a pretty high wall. You really need to prove why you would need to change it. No, we have problems. We have problems in this country and it's not hard to tell people that. And we have popular ideas. And part of what we need to do is cut through the lie that our ideas are not in fact popular because they are. I, I love your reminding us to be mindful of when the media frame expands to include the people who think that Biden is not the president. When that happens, there needs to be wholesale repudiation, you know, of the media that allow that to happen because that normalization will make that tactic successful for him because the overall point is to undermine confidence in this presidency and in the electoral process. So it's really an important a way of, of reading. Uh, Kirsten, you're inside that media space uh, as well, writing against the machine. What is it that you are seeing that you want to share with critical media uh, uh, consumption? What do we need to be thinking about moving forward? Just to reiterate a little bit what I said earlier is that it it's really comes down to being the fourth estate and not for the state. You know, normalizing Black politics, normalizing conversations around socialism, normalizing conversations around defunding the police, normalizing conversations around universal um, health care and conversations around education for all, normalizing these things that Black communities have been fighting for for so long. When I speak about these things, typically I talk about how mainstream media, quote unquote, criticizes advocacy journalism as if it's somehow less than, as if objectivity is actually the reality, but you're coming to media off top with your own biases, with your own prejudices. There's a lot of white supremacy in newsrooms. And we see that not just with the number of black people in newsrooms, but with the politics that they espouse. We look at the crime bill 93. There are statistics that show between the media scripts that more crime, more showing black people doing these things, more showing Latinx people doing these things helps to push through policies that then criminalize black and brown people. It works hand in hand. We have a media that used to, with no qualms about it, put out wanted slave ads as if this was somehow news instead of questioning the system of slavery itself. So again, I think it comes down to the truth being the fourth estate, not for the state, saying what needs to be said, normalizing conversations that are on the fringe in the margins and bringing them to the fore because there are so many people afraid of these conversations and we need that not to be the case in the next four years. And I will just also say really, really quickly talking about, because someone made the point, I think it was Emory about the South and not gentrifying the South. Absolutely. 
there are people when we talk about progressive movements that think of, you know, white people in Vermont all the time. If not for black progressive people, we would not be here. If not for people like a Fannie Lou Hamer back with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, we would not be here. And I think it's time for nuance. It's time to be very, very specific about what we're talking about. We, when we talk about Nazis, right? We don't talk about the fact that Nazis and Hitlerism and all those things, they got that from us. They got that from Jim Crow. They got that from not, let me, let me change that, not us. They got that from them. They got there from white leaders in this country who did that. So I think at this point, there needs to be an allegiance to the truth. There needs to be a pushback on this kind of revisionism that we're seeing about our own country. And there needs to be across the board from politics to the classroom to the movement, because that's the only way. I will never doubt radical love again and how it showed up in this election. But I'm very, very clear that for it to be so, so close, and it's how Martin Luther King said, you know, am I integrating my people into the burning house? The house is still burning. So media has a responsibility to help kind of put some of those flames out in some areas and help lift them up in others. And on that note, Kate, let me come to you because yeah, it was unexpectedly close. Um, and some part of the question of community or chaos turns on, is there engagement that actually is transformative? Alicia was saying we need to put more resources and efforts in that direction. Um, what is your sense about what that, you know, climb looks like? Are there windows of opportunity that you're at least optimistic about or think that might provide some sunlight, daylight for us to do that important work? Yeah, I, I think my, my biggest thought here is the negative point that we need to stop catering to white moderates, the kind of perpetual centering of the white moderate and white folks in general calls after the fact to, you know, to sympathize with the Trump voter rather than holding them accountable for the harm they've inflicted on marginalized communities for these four years. I, I guess what I think is we need to stop doing certain things such as humoring, indulging. I mean, even indulging the president now as he's attempting to stage a coup, which will not be successful. Um, and yet, you know, there have been calls just in the last few days to give the president some time to come to terms with, I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, it's the kind of thing that humoring a two or three-year-old, if they were exhibiting this behavior, would not be a good idea, let alone a 74-year-old man who has had his time, lost the election, and who needs to step aside. Um, so I guess I think it's what we need to do is start centering discussions on the needs of black voters and brown voters who have long been the Democratic Party's base, who should be at the absolute center of these discussions and not at the margins of yet another boring, pointless discussion of how to, um, how to win over recalcitrant white voters and maybe how to, to cater to white voters who are voting for the wrong side. And I, I have to say, Kate, um, it, when your second edition of Entitled comes out, I can't imagine that there won't be a chapter about how entitlement is playing out on a grand scale. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if Obama had lost during, during his reelection and they decided, you know what, we're not sure if we're ready to go yet. I mean, you know. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. <laughs> that, that's part of the baseline of entitlement, what you're entitled to act out. Um, so thank you for that. La last uh, couple of comments about what next. Emory, I know that you had some thoughts about 
what the global dimension of this moment is, what the threat is, and what we have in, you know, potentially the, the capacity to do if we're able to build out this moment. Right, yes. Project South, a big part of our work has always been and continues to be to connect with and learn from global movements. And we have some deep relationships with the Yanomar social movement in Senegal and with the Lucha movement in the Democratic Republic of Congo and other social movements that honestly are much more sophisticated um, and advanced than we are right now in this country. And, and one thing we've learned is one, these same patterns. I mean, this this sort of uh, global reality of power experimenting with these strongman, dictatorial, fascist leaders to replace the liberal democracy as the vehicle that's held capitalism and anti-Black racism and all these forms of oppression with fascism. And, and the U.S. South knows what fascism is a formal form of governance looks like because we lived it for generations. And so this is a global situation and we have to connect globally. Another thing we learned from our global movements and we really put our, our sort of emphasis on social movements are gonna be the only vehicle in this country or anywhere in the world that have the will and the principles to transform society in the way that it needs to be transformed. And so we're gonna to have to grow in our sophistication. Media is a big thing. Social movements are going to have to build our own communications infrastructure. Tufar Waller Muhammad, a Southern movement leader, runs Project South's Black Radio Project. We, we're working with Black-owned stations all across the Southeast and trying to build movement communications infrastructure. We have to build the ability to accumulate and distribute knowledge. And Kirsten points again, you know, how it's happening in media is not working for us. And so how can we create uh, mechanisms, processes and infrastructure, movement infrastructure that can accumulate and distribute knowledge in real times? What's happening? What is news? And we're gonna have to do that on a broad scale movements like, again, uh, Lucha and, and, and DRC and, and Yanomar and Senegal are doing it. And we got to look at this, the global dynamics of this. We're, we're working a case in South Georgia right now to shut down Irwin Detention Center, where you have women um, who've been undergoing forced sterilization um, and, and all sorts of inhumane, you know, reprehensible conditions in these detention center. It's a global reality. There's Jamaican women, Cameroonian women, Mexican women um, who are all here in Georgia, you know, dealing with the situation. So we're already in a global reality. We just have to see it and build those bridges across the borders that were meant to divide us. Right. Well, so um, I want to ask a few people to take us home. Um, a representative uh, for the time being, uh, Lee, give us some marching orders. Well, first, let me just say, uh, someone mentioned it sounded like we were in Wakanda land, but we are. Alicia and I are in Oakland, California. So I want you to know <laughs> yeah. you are. You got it right. job. <laughs> but, but listen, <laughs> this has been a phenomenal panel. Thank you so much for bringing us together. Where do we go from here? I want to go back to what Eddie was talking about and what someone commented on about Germany and, and a day of reckoning. We have never had a truth telling moment, our day of reckoning in America. And so we have got, and we talk about healing, racial healing, uh, that can't come until we have this moment of reckoning. And so I'm, I am working on, and I hope you pick up, and I've talked with Eddie about this, a truth, racial healing and transformation commission. 
many countries, over 40 countries have established these for to have the descendants of those who have been victimized by slavery, crimes against humanity, genocide, to come forward and present the case in a historical context in order to heal, to move forward. Many countries abroad have done this, but we didn't call ours reconciliation. We called it truth, racial healing, and transformation because there's nothing in this country to reconcile when it comes to African-Americans. And so I hope that we are able to really push this next administration to embrace everything we've been talking about, including that platform, which is what we should use to hold this administration accountable to the issues we've been talking about, but also to push members of Congress to support this moment that we have to have in terms of uh, truth telling, because everyone is like talking about racial healing, but we gotta have this moment where we have a national historical moment of truth telling about the historical context of systemic racism and why we see now Mr. Floyd being killed and all the black and brown people being killed by police, the disproportionate rates of people dying, black and brown people from COVID, the disproportionate uh, rates of the wealth gap in, in terms of the African-American being, what all systemic racism is connected to. And it's connected to 401 years ago. We've never had that moment to tell the truth about that so that we can move forward and then become a country that's going to transform its systems with reparations. And I do believe we have to repair the damage and we've got to do that on all fronts. And thank you so much, Representative Lee. And, you know, you talked about storytelling. So I want to I want to blend in one last uh, uh, hit with Viet. You are one of this generation's greatest storytellers. What are the stories we need to be telling to activate these possibilities that Representative Lee and Alicia and Emery and everybody's been talking about? What, what approach do we need to take? Well, I think that storytellers do play a key role in this multiracial coalition. And you know, Representative Lee brought up the need for truth and reconciliation or commission to deal with the historical past. I wanna point out that my colleague, the poet Robin Costa Lewis has started that commission in Los Angeles in her capacity as the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. I mean, there's so much of what's happening in the country is here in Los Angeles as a microcosm. Storytellers play a crucial role in bringing those histories out. One last point I want to address in terms of stories and, and populations that we haven't talked about are refugees and migrants. Trump started his campaign by demonizing migrants. He's continued to demonize migrants and refugees throughout his four years. I take it very personally as a former refugee myself, and I think it's encouraging that uh, President-elect Biden has already promised to restore DACA, to restore Obama levels of refugee quotas. And this is crucial. This is a part of the American story that we should be at Thank you so much. Reverend Dr. Gloud, you know I'm coming to you uh, to take us home. Let me throw this at you. So, you know, we have sometimes been on, you know, not the best side of an existing Democratic administration. Uh, so we kind of have to grow the capacity to love and to lovingly critique. I anticipate uh, that we'll have to continue to, to do that uh, moving forward. So give us some marching orders. Give us a sense of how we navigate between the chaos that we're in and the community that we're hoping to engender. Well, I don't want to presume such hubris that I can give anyone marching orders, right? We're going to march together. That's the first thing. We have to tell the truth. What was the answer to where do we go from here, chaos or community? King was dead the next year. They elected Richard Nixon. Then they elected him again. Then they elected Jimmy Carter. We thought Jimmy Carter was going to actually respond 
and he hired, he, he appointed all of these black folk all throughout the administration and then did what? Austerity policies that devastated our community. In some ways, he was the first neoliberal president. Then they elected Ronald Reagan. So let's not get it twisted that because we have Joe Biden in office and because we have the first black woman, the first South Asian, the first woman of South Asian descent, the first woman of Caribbean descent in office that our work is done. We know the history. I'm from a, I'm a country boy from the coast of Mississippi. <laughs> I grew up with hurricanes hitting the coast every, every other year. And what do we know? The, the front of the storm is rough. The eye of the storm gives you the illusion of calm, but there's the tail. We're in the eye of the storm, y'all. We need to prepare ourselves for the work that is required of us as the tail comes. Buckle up. Let's go. We got work to do. Well, that, you know, he said he wasn't going to give us marching orders, but he did tell us to buckle up, put the boards up, get ready. Because, you know, we're, we're stepping into a moment. We're stepping into a moment where retrenchment is not going to go away, where entitlement is going to be the mode of the day and where we have to be vigilant. Even as we do so, happy that we have a new platform. We've got to use the platform we have to continue to do the work. So first of all, I want to thank my amazing veterans uh, of the black light. I'm so glad that we can call on you. You're like our Mission Impossible uh, crew, Alicia Garza, Eddie Glau, Janine Jackson, Representative Barbara Lee, Kate Mann, Viet Pan Nguyen, Kirsten Westervalli, and Emery Wright. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Rebecca Sheckman. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. 